Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, uh, before we uh, take a look at uh, the ideas that I'd like to share with you this morning, uh, as I said last week, the backdrop, and if we can cut the lights just a little bit, the backdrop was such that I wanted to make sure the words would shine out. And we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. I'd love to have had some nice greenery, and I've got some wonderful photos, but I just couldn't get the backdrop to stand out enough. So I um, punted to the desert. But this is from the top of Masada. Last week, you saw some of the the photo I had, the backdrop, that was from the bottom of Masada, looking up. Now you're at the top, and you're looking at the West End. And I just want to show you some things very briefly while we have a moment. But uh, it is really quite amazing. Uh, we're way up, probably somewhere close to 1,500 feet above uh, the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest place in the world, 1,500 feet below sea level. I remember when I was um, in one of my classes with one of my, my professors, and we were talking about the Dead Sea. And he said, that's as close to hell as you can get this life. Is as low as you can get. Okay, always remember that line, I guess. But from the very top, check this out. You can see, oh, wrong, wrong button, hold on. Um, you can see like these Roman siege walls that were laid out right around the entirety of Masada. So, and this is just one small portion. And uh, so that if any of the Jewish people that were on top attempted to escape, not only would they have to climb down, not only would they have to get past the Roman guards, but then they'd have to get over the siege wall, which is lower today than it was, and then they'd have to escape around these Roman camps. And you can see how they built them, and they're all around the size of them. This was probably the camp that housed the uh, head of the legion that led them Uh, I don't know if Titus returned, the 10th Legion, and probably his quarters and those that were attending to him were in this quadrant of this particular encampment. And then when you come over here, you can see the beginning of the siege wall, uh, the siege ramp that was built that went all the way to the top and uh, enabled the Romans to scale Masada and then to force the uh, Jewish people out. Of course, on the top of Masada, 300 plus Uh, men, women, and children had committed suicide rather than to fall, except for maybe one family, than to fall prey to the Romans and to experience all that, all the torment that they uh, might cause. But for three years, the Jewish people held out against the Roman uh, 10th legion that surrounded uh, Masada, and it uh, quite a feat. But uh, this morning, we want to talk about 
the and this isn't happening, Scott. What, what's that? It did before, but it's not now. Okay, so what we want to do is I want to look at the fruit of the Spirit, love. So first of all, in the book of Galatians, uh, we read that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, long-suffering, self-control, faithfulness, gentleness, and against such things, there is no law. But um, So we want to look at the fruit of the Spirit. We talked something about this last week. But the fruit of the Spirit, that that aspect of the fruit of the Spirit we'll look at this morning uh, has to do with, with love. And in essence, the fruit of the Spirit is really the holiness of God. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's a manifestation of His character. It's a manifestation of His holiness. Now, how is it that we are to manifest this fruit? How is it that God is to so take hold of us that it just is exhibited in our, in our character. I think in one sense we have to realize that the fruit of the Spirit manifests itself to the degree to which we understand and embrace the work of grace in our lives and in our heart. I was listening to a message by Tim Keller, and I really enjoy his, his teaching. don't always agree with everything he has to say, but I do like a lot of the challenges that he presents to me as I think about God's Word. And he makes the point of how important it is that we reflect on and embrace the idea of the grace of God is that which produces the things that God would have produced within us. His point is this. You see, you can look at the fruit of the Spirit and you can attempt to manifest those qualities and characteristics through your own efforts to earn God's good pleasure through your own efforts to merit God's blessings as a result of manifesting these good things. And he concludes that if you do that, you will not manifest the fruit of the Spirit, but in reality, you will manifest the works of the flesh. Now, the reason why he says you will manifest the works of the flesh is because by pursuing these qualities by your own effort, by my own effort, and to whatever degree we attain what appears to look like love or appears to look like joy or peace, it will well up and create pride within us. And so we'll begin to think of ourselves as look at what I have been able to finally produce in my life. By simply determining to be more loving, determining to be more joyful, determining to be uh, at peace and at rest in my heart. Tim Keller is telling us that if we attempt to pursue this in such a way, it will only produce the works of the flesh because it will produce pride. And in the end, we will be more disturbed by what we have not yet achieved than by what God in his providence pursues and manifests in us. On the other hand, he says, we have to remember that we are redeemed by the Lord, brought into a relationship with God by his grace. And when we come into a relationship with God, what has happened is our sin has been placed upon him. He has taken on our sin. He has taken on all of our Trials, all of our struggles, all of our disobediences. And in turn, he has exchanged 
for those things his own righteousness. So in reality, he has taken on our sin and he has attributed to us his righteousness. And that's what it says in Corinthians. He has become our righteousness, our holiness, our sanctification. And so the real thing that is to go on is we are to rely upon the grace of God to manifest these truths. As we look upon God, as we reflect upon God's character, as we reflect on the truths of God's word, what he instructs us, what he challenges us to do is what we learn about him while we're in our time of meditation and study and worship and praise, we have to take with us into the world so that as we encounter various trials or various moments, they don't have to be trials, but various moments in our lives, we bring to bear through us what we've come to realize through the study of God's word, through the worship of God, and through our communion with him. That is why I think prayer and worship is so critical. I know we come in, and I really like what Francis Chan says in his video on the Spirit of God, is that we come into our service and everything is predictable. Everything is laid out. Everything is sort of chronicled. This is what we're going to do, and there's no room for the Spirit of God to do what he would want to do because we've already plotted out what it is that's going to happen. And what we find in Scripture is so often things happen because God just shows up and makes himself known. And I can resonate with that. I think we all can. And we do live in a real world, and that kind of thing can't go on 24-7. But the point about the fruit of the Spirit is we have to take what we understand about God and bring that understanding to bear in the crucible of our life. He has taken our sin. He has given us his righteousness. He has given us the fruit of the Spirit of God that dwells, who dwells within us. And so now it is for us to manifest it in light of the truths we have learned about him. Tim Keller points out that if you look at some characters in Scripture, how it is they attained holiness, he tells us, and I think it's kind of an interesting thing to reflect on, is by their seeing God. So Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the Lord lofty and lifted up. And as a result, God then takes the coal, puts it by his angel upon his tongue, and he is sanctified and separated and made holy. Why? Because he had a glimpse of God. Job says a similar thing. He says, my ears have heard your voice, but now my eyes have seen you. And as a result, he comes to realize the holiness of God and the purpose God has in terms of the suffering he had to endure. It is a Peter who says, when he sees Yeshua, depart from me because we are sinful people. When he sees Yeshua, do the miracles that he does. In other words, it's getting a glimpse of God. And as we get a glimpse of his character and as we encounter the world in which we live, we want to see God show up in our experiences in and through us. And I can tell you that there have been times in my life, as I'm reflecting on this, where there was, you know, an issue came up in my life or an experience or a moment, and I could really hear God's word saying to me in the background of my mind something quite relevant to what I was just faced with. 
And what that was telling me, what I believe God's Spirit was telling me was, this is how you need to react to this. And so now it's up to me to yield to what I'm hearing God tell me based on what I have learned in my study or in my sharing or in my worship or sitting under the preaching of others or whatever it might be. And to have that boldness to now allow God's spirit to manifest himself with regard to this character, these character traits, to come out in the crucible of experiences. In the book of John, in his first letter, I found this to be interesting. We're talking about love. That's where we want to move toward. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that's the satisfaction, the, that which is needful for our sins, he has provided it. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, then we can see God, is what he means when he says, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So here are some thoughts that I have, and I think in the bulletins you can see the inserts and you can follow along if you'd like. First of all, in 1 John, notice that the reference to God In just these five verses, verses 7 through 12, 11 times the Lord is referred to. And in those same verses, if we extend those verses to verses 13 to 21, which is the fuller segment of that passage, you'll find that God has made reference to 21 times. If we go back to the verses 7 to 12, the reference to love is referred to 12 times, and if we extend it out to the 21st verse, the word love occurs 26 times. So if we're to ask the question, what are these verses about? They are about the love of God. That's what John wants us to be focused upon, is the love of God. And that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It is the love of God manifesting itself in and through us. You know, if we look at the scriptures, there are certain passages that are most popular. So, for example, Psalm 23 is a most popular passage. Young children learn to recite it. We hear it uh, at nearly every funeral or memorial service. Um, We find great delight in that psalm, knowing that the Lord is our shepherd who leads us. You can look at the Ten Commandments, which reveals the moral character of God himself and what his expectations are for us. If we were to ask, what is a most popular passage in the Bible? Certainly, Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments has to be among that list. But another passage that is also, I think, a most popular passage, which we often hear read at every wedding, is 1 Corinthians 13. And it's the passage that focuses on love. And what it is. In 1 Corinthians 13, love is referred to as the greatest of all the characteristics of God and of all the virtues 
that we might be able to manifest. Of all the graces that God might extend to us, it is love that is preeminent. Paul says, these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And the whole passage of 1 Corinthians 13 is about whatever it is we do is only as significant as the love we have that is the foundation by which we do whatever it is we do. So that even if we manifest the gifts of the Spirit of God, if we do so without the love of God, those gifts, he says, are turned into nothing but noise, insignificance, can cause more damage than good if there is not love. He says, as important and critical and central is the gift of prophesying. Call it the gift of teaching. Call it the gift of proclamation. Call it the gift of sharing the truths of Messiah, whether evangelistically or otherwise. If we do so without love, he tells us, well, then we are just making noise, and what we have to say is irrelevant and insignificant. That's how critical, central, pivotal is love, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. When we get to the fruit of the Spirit, it is love that is mentioned first. That's no accident. They're all the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. All nine are to show up in our lives. Now, we may need to work on some, but all nine must be there because the fruit of the Spirit is the very presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. It's the very exhibiting of the character of the Spirit who dwells within us. And so this passage, though it is not one of the most popular passages, is a passage that is inundated with the love of God. So the love of God spoken of in John chapter 1 is the first fruit of the Spirit. And by the use of the word fruit, which is something I was focusing on, karpos, interestingly enough, in the Greek, you know, which reminds me of the Hebrew prayer that we pray during, you know, Passover, where we say, what is it? Baruch HaTadadai Eloheinu Melchalam Al-Achilat Karpas, you know? Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, um, that in, who has commanded us in the eating of the fruit. And so we eat the parsley, the karpas. But in Greek, it's the same word, karpas, for fruit. And by the use of the word fruit, is meant that these virtues or spiritual qualities are the spontaneous. It's not something that um, you sort of dredge up. It spontaneously manifests itself by the presence of the Spirit of God within the heart of the individual. So these fruit show up as we experience life and as we go through life and as we have the word of God richly inundated in our hearts and souls and on our mind. These fruit or nine graces is another way of speaking about what our life ought to look like, what our lifestyle ought to be. They're not just things by which we react to experiences or events in our lives. They ought to be characteristic of how we live our life. And that's what God is beginning to work in each and every one of us. It is a process over time by the work of God's Spirit in producing himself in and through us. So 
the fruit or these nine graces, here love is listed first. In 1 Corinthians 13, as I said, it is referred to as the greatest. But check out these verses. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So here's the question. What does love look like? What is love? And before we can answer that question, we need to understand how some of these words are used. So let me just share with you these four Greek words of love that are translated as love. I wrote here in the Brit HaDashah or in the New Covenant, there are four words used for love, but that's not true. There are two words of the four that are found in the New Covenant Scripture. Not all four are used. So, for example, the first word, storge, and by the way, a great book to read on this is C.S. Lewis's book called The Four Loves. And it is there that he outlines these points. And so one word is, is the Greek word storge, which speaks of family love, love or affection for family members. You know, we love our mom and our dad and our brothers and sisters. So it's like our children. It's a family word, but you never find this in the New Testament. But what you do find, I found out, is that you have the negative that's oftentimes, well, in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, verse 31, let me just read that passage to you. For example, it's Astorge, in which he says, And since they did not see fit, in verse 28, to acknowledge God, God gave them over, those are, that is, those of us in sin before he saved us, he gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, and the word translated here, heartless, is the word astorge, meaning that they don't have a love. Now, the word storge means love for family, but astorgas or astorge means to be heartless, without a heart of concern or passion. So we don't have storge, but we do have the negative. And then there's the word eros. We get the word erotic from this. It's not found in the New Testament, but we get the word erotic from this. It's usually translated meaning passion or lust or a strong pull. But the word is that is used in the context of a love that must be earned. A love that one must be worthy to receive. And therefore, it's a love that desires to possess things. It's a love in the sense of controlling. And that's what lust is about. I must have it, and I must have it now. And so whether it's with regard to sexual things, or whether it's regard to food, or whether it's regard to uh, accomplishments, whether it's usually used with respect to power and control, So it's something that has to do with something that is earned, something that is grabbed hold of, and something that seeks to possess another thing or an object. So this kind of love is a very base form. Though it's translated love, it's a very base characteristic that seeks to control, that seeks to own, that seeks to... um, to just possess for itself. This is in contrast to the great word for love, agape. 
which is a love that one cannot earn, but can only be received. And a love that does not seek to possess, but a love that seeks to give of itself. Eros is never found in the New Covenant Scriptures. And then a third word is the word phileo. And this is a word we get like from the city of Philadelphia. Adelphos is the word, Greek word for brother. And philadelphos is the word for love, phileo. Philadelphos means the love of brothers. And so Philadelphia is the city, the town of brotherly love. So phileo means to love with the sense of friendship. Love where there's just a... Uh, a connection with another individual. It has to do with affection. It's a love that's warm. It's a love that's merited. You earn friendships. People trust you and you earn their trust. And thus, phileo has that connotation to it. But agape is a totally different thing altogether. We use the English word love, but it really denotes something quite different from all the other words that we've looked at. And this is the word that you find over and over again in the passage in 1 John. This is the word that's used in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love. This is the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 13. This is the word that's used in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world. This is a love that gives of itself and is given to others. In other words, it's a love that is received And as a result, it's a love that gives. And so in contrast, it's not a love that is merited, but it's a love that is granted. It's a love that's given because it's the very presence of God outworking in our lives. And it seeks to give irrespective of merit. It seeks to lavish. It seeks to sacrifice for. It's a love that seeks to give. First John says, this is love. Not that we loved God, it's unmerited. This is agape. Not that we've agaped God. No, 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 no. He agaped us. It's unmerited. It's a love that comes from God. It's not a love that we can conjure up. It's only a love that can manifest itself by God's grace and mercy as the Spirit of God shows up. But that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the satisfaction. That's what this... A technical theological term, propitiation means. It means to satisfy the wrath of God. So what Messiah has done is that he has taken upon himself the wrath that was due us. And thus he thereby then showers us with his grace and with his love. It seeks to give. In other words, he took our sin, our punishment, our guilt, all of that, place them upon himself that we would be spared of it. We were given his grace and he had taken, we didn't even give it to him. He took from us all that would otherwise result in the wrath of God being poured out on us. I know we don't talk a lot about the wrath of God, but the word propitiation is directed directly to that issue. We are all ones who are worthy of and were on the way to experiencing the wrath of our Lord. But he showed up in each one of our lives. And he then extended his agape to us. And then he made us ones that could do similarly 
as he has done for us. Greater love, agape, has no, no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And so he has given us the capacity to seek the good of others. And so Paul then will say, consider others better than yourselves. The scripture will say, love one another. The scripture will talk about love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture talks about how God has set his love upon Israel, grace. Why? Not because they earned it, but simply because he loved them. So someone has said that when our spouses speak to us, And they ask us, so why do you love us? I think Tim Keller had used this analogy. Why do you love me? If we said, because you're such a great cook and you're so good at, well, you fill in the blanks, you know, in my household, because you take care of our bills so tidily that you are the one that has such a handle on our savings, that you have done so marvelously in investing your life in our son. I mean, I could go through all these kinds of things that... Mary Lou has done. But in the end, it is not because of those things that really an individual wants to hear, that's why you love me. Really what we want to hear is I love you simply because I love you. Because there will come a time, we might say I love you because you're so beautiful, but there'll come a time when you're not going to be so beautiful. (laughs) That time has already come for some of us. I was thinking about that, but I won't, I won't, you know, go down that rabbit trail. But I got to tell you, every morning I get up, I look in the mirror and I say, what has happened? You know, I said, here I am in California. I should be looking groovy. But no, I am looking spent. And I look at that and I say, what has happened? There may have been a time although it's probably not true, but there may have been a time when Mary Lou said, I love you because you're such a handsome guy. Probably never happened. But if it did, there will definitely become a time when she could not say, I love you because you're still so handsome. You know, if, if we talk about the things we have accomplished, there'll come a time when our minds will not work very well. We won't be able to keep the books. There'll come a time, perhaps, when we won't even remember the names of our children. If we're loving one another for the things we're able to do, there's going to come a time when we're no longer going to be able to do them. And now the question is, do you still love me? And unless the answer is because I simply love you, well, then you're not really loving that person as we ought to love one another. That's what God says. I love you, Israel, because I just love you. And I can't take it any further than that. I can't explain it anymore than that I love you and I love you deeply so much that I've chosen you above all the nations, so much that it'll be through you Messiah will come who will save all the peoples of the earth, not least of which Israel. I love you so much I've given you the navel, some have called it, the navel of the earth, the land of Israel, the cross point between three continents and perhaps the center Of the earth. There are some who have acknowledged it that way. Certainly one of the most beautiful places in all the world and one of the most diverse. I believe there are nine different geographical regions in the space of a nation, a country, the size, and this is an honor, the size of New Jersey. New Jersey. 
That's, that's where I'm from. I won't say Rhode Island, the size of New Jersey. We go to the top. But this is a love that is a love of God because God loves us. And this is a love we are to have for one another as God enables us to have. Because we stood in judgment of God, but Messiah became that satisfaction. Here's another thing, you know. Um, I you know, I, I think it was another message by Tim Keller. All these things kind of swirl through my mind. But someone has said, when you think about what the Lord had endured for our sin, he endured that not only for my sin, which is worth eternal years, I don't know, eternality of punishment or eternality of alienation from God, but that for every individual who has ever lived. So how many people have lived? Hundreds of billions of people? I don't even know. I mean, there's what now five and a half billion people on our planet. Is that about about the size of it? And so that's just this year, right? So if we were to take however long the, the earth, however old the earth is, and we take all the people, how many billions of people is that that the Lord has taken upon this eternal weight of suffering? And He did that within a three-hour period on the cross at twelve o'clock. He says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Perhaps that's where it crescendos. Or if you want to push it back to nine in the morning, nine to three, he was on the cross. So if you want six hours or three hours, in a six-hour, three-hour period, all the judgment of God was just compressed in on him in that moment. So that's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? You know, it's one thing to think of something spread out, especially challenges that we face, but imagine them just compressed and so dense like a black hole that just sucks everything in. And even that does not really give us a glimpse into all that was compressed on our Savior. And this passage with one word attempts to kind of convey that. He became the propitiation for our sin. He did not seek his own, but he sought our need. This kind of giving love can be our experience. It can be our lifestyle. Paul had already spoken of this in Galatians. He said, for in Messiah, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but our faith working through love. He's already talked about this in Galatians 5. So then here's a key thought. Love is the expression of our faith. We've always thought the expression of faith is to believe hard things that are not easy to believe. Sometimes we thought faith is to attempt great things, hard things maybe, that are seemingly insurmountable and impossible. But what Paul's telling us here is, no, the expression of faith is not in that. It's in the degree to which we can love and to love one another. He said, none of that stuff, as important as circumcision is, certainly to Paul, certainly to Jewish people, certainly to Jewish believers. It's, it's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant and all that emerges from it. As significant as that is, as a spiritual reality, he says it counts for nothing. What does count for much is love that is exhibited by faith. And so if we want to be a people of faith, we have to be a people of love.
So in Galatians, it says, For you were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for sin, but love. Use our freedom in Messiah to love one another. Loving one's neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 5 says, God's love has already been poured out into our hearts. It it already has residence in our innermost being because the Spirit of God is already dwelling there. Because love is supernatural enterprise, it's the most distinctive mark of the believer, as I've tried to illustrate before. John 13, by this all people will know you're my disciples, not by your theological tidiness. Not by our great size or small size. Some people pride themselves that their congregation or church is small and tidy and a nice fellowship. Others pride themselves on how large they are and how many congregations they've planted. The issue is not how large or big, how friendly or otherwise. It is how loving are we. That's what Paul says. This is how people will know us. Not because we're so big or massive or so intimate, but rather because we're loving one another. There's no more critical expression from a believer than love. Above all, Peter says, keep loving one another. Don't give up on loving one another earnestly. And so he says, thus we're to love our enemies. We love one another. Love the Lord with our whole heart. Consider the good Samaritan who saw the Jewish man on the side of the road and he stops. And I've always loved this quote from Martin Luther King. He had given this quote in Tennessee, in Memphis, the day before he was assassinated. And he said, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But... The Good Samaritan reversed the question, Martin Luther King said. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And so that's what love is about. So if we want to see what love looks like, here's some interesting illustration from Lazarus's sister. So in Mark chapter 11, love is one that meets needs. Yeshua goes into Jerusalem. It's late in the day, it says. So he doesn't engage But now he has to leave and spend the night. What does he do? He walks to Bethany. And then the very next verse says he gets up, he leaves Bethany, he heads to Jerusalem. Who lived in Bethany? That's where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. What did they do? They opened their home to him. And they allowed him to stay there whenever he had a need. So what does love do? It attempts to meet needs. It attempts to open its heart. It attempts to open up its resources for others to be benefited by What does love do? Well, it spends time. Look what Luke tells us about Mary. She's the one that sat at the feet of Yeshua while he was teaching, while Martha was taking care of the kitchen items. And she says, tell my sister, she's got to come in there to help me. And Yeshua says, she has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away. What did she do? She gave of her time. Yes, she had to take time away from her sister. But she gave of her time to Messiah. Love gives of its time. So if we're going to love one another, we have to say, I'm not going to do this, which I'd love to do so I could be with you. These home groups, you got to ask this question. If you want to love one another, you have to be involved with each other. And that requires life groups. It requires some kind of connections. 
And that's what Andrew and others are attempting to do in creating our life groups. And you may say, I just don't have the time. Love spends time. And maybe you're spending time in other ways, and I, and I get that. But love, however you do, love spends time. Not only that, love sacrifices. She took a pound of expensive ointment. She, she poured it out on Yeshua and anointed him. She took what was then considered, I believe, a year's wages and poured it out. She was extravagant with her resources because love does sacrifice, financially even. And love takes risks. It reaches out. So what did she do? She wiped his feet with her hair. First of all, that's what slaves did. So imagine the reputation that she may have gotten from those watching what was going on. Not only that, there was something immoral in the first century, something considered a little lewd, a little loose, inappropriate by untying your hair, let alone using it to anoint and to dry up someone's feet. Yet she does that, not concerned about what others might think because she wants to risk what it is she has to show her love for her Savior. So here are some final questions as we conclude. Generally speaking, do we find it easy or hard to love? Some people do find it hard. Some people apparently think that it's not so difficult. But can you think of someone you find it hard to love? And what about someone you are regularly with that you find it difficult to love? I kept thinking of people who work with bosses who are just terrible and hard on them. Live with spouses that are just not sensitive, caring, compassionate, as perhaps they ought to be. Children that are unloving. I can tell you stories of what people share with me about their kids and how mean they can be and vice versa. People in our lives that have come through our lives. Is there someone we find it hard to love Someone that we have to encounter regularly that we find it difficult to love? And here's the big question then. Are we willing to allow the Spirit of God to show up? Because He is in our heart. If He's in our heart, the fruit of the Spirit is there. Are we willing to allow Him, as He shows up, to actually motivate us to do the loving thing that he would want us to do, he would desire us to do, and that only he can empower us to do. This is not something we do by pulling up our bootstraps. It's something we do because our heart is filled with gratitude toward God. It's something we do because our heart is filled with great joy with regard to what God has done for us and everything else then pales in comparison. Even the hurts we endure. So can we do the faith thing in showing love and to do so to that person or persons that comes into our mind that we say, this is a tough one. The honest thing to do is to recognize it not only is a tough one, it is an impossible one. And if it's an impossible one, then the only way it will be done is if the supernatural empowerment of the Spirit of God, who can enable us to move mountains 
and to have them cast into the sea will be moved from us and cast away from us. But it's fruit that grows in its time. And that is for each individual to nurture, to sort of water, to uh, give the, um, what do you call it, the fertilizing, so that when the opportunity is there, the Lord's fruit starts growing, and now we yield ourselves because of the great love the Lord has shed abroad already in our hearts. Let us pray that the fruit of the Spirit, love, which is the greatest of these, which is the first on the list, will be that which will be manifested in our lives, day by day, moment by moment, as we encounter those moments where we might not want it to show up, but deep down we really do. Let's pray. And as I pray, the ushers can come up, the worship team as well. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us this day. It is by grace that we are saved, and this not of ourselves. It is the gift, it is the gift of God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take hold of our lives that you would help us in being loving to one another. Your word says, for when we were slaves of sin, we were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification or holiness and in its end, eternal life. So, Lord, you have set us free. And may that freedom be seen, among other things, in loving one another. May you produce the fruit, this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That, Father, you would be praised and glorified, that we would exemplify the great love we have for you. And that everyone would be enriched by it. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that are being received this morning. Our prayer is that they be used to honor you, to glorify you, so that the giver and the dispenser of these gifts would bring glory and honor to your name. Help us to use them responsibly and help them, Father, that they might build up your people and your kingdom. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. 
Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.